My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors at the Resolve Church, and um, I've been there now for uh, just about eight years at the Resolve Church, and it has been a real blessing to be a part of that church, but also uh, to really get to know Infusion uh, during that time as well. Uh, we're a sister church because we're part of the Acts 29 Church Planting Network, and uh, it has been just an immense blessing to be able to watch um, and really walk with Infusion through all of the different seasons of its life. Uh, so I just want to say thank you uh, to Matt, to your family, to Infusion, uh, just for the, the, con- the constant presence of the gospel um, here and just the work that you're doing up here in Escondido. Uh, it is an immense privilege uh, to be able to serve you here and just to be a part of your family this morning. Um, my church is sleeping right now because they have the Rock and Roll Marathon that runs outside its building. So I can't miss out on a Sunday morning gathering. <laughs> so anyway... Uh, this morning, I'll be preaching out of 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I was, I was talking with Pastor Josh uh, and kind of where your guys' church is with church life and, um, you know, grace. I, I wanted something that would hopefully encourage uh, and edify us in this. And I've been preaching through 1 John with our own church, um, kind of our corollary uh, to the Gospel of Luke that we're in. And there's just so much about the way that... Um, God's grace really transforms the way that we live, the way that we think, and most importantly, the way that we love. And it is our loves which ultimately motivate us and move us, as we'll see in a little bit. But I'm going to go ahead and read our text, and I'll pray for our time together. This is 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for the invitation that we have to participate in your life through your son Jesus. God, I thank you for allowing us to be able to share in your life, to share with you this this fellowship that we can have with you, Father God, through your son Jesus. I pray that you would help us this morning as we study your word to have fellowship with you in our spirits. God, I pray that this time would be honoring to you. Jesus, I pray that you'd be glorified. I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might behold wonderful things from your word this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've titled my sermon, Life Manifested, and it's very clear from the second verse right at the beginning. Uh, Why? The life was made manifest. Life manifested. Life of God made seeable and touchable and hearable incarnated in the person of Jesus. This is utterly profound as we understand the implications for our own relationship with God. Now, I just jumped right into the book, and I just want to give a little background as to why I think this is important for us to to remember that the life of God was made manifest in a person, in relationship. The book was written by the Apostle John. He's one of my favorite disciples. He has the very glorious honor of being called the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's amazing. Out of all the disciples, John had the most intimate relationship with Jesus. 
Two scenes really highlight that. At the Lord's Supper, who is there resting on Jesus in a very tender embrace? It is John. And at the cross, after all the disciples had fled him, who is there but John? And John, not only, along with us, as part of the family of God, adopted into the eternal family of God, but he was adopted into the earthly family of Jesus. Even as Jesus was dying on the cross, he he looks at John, talking to Mary, his, his mother, and says, Behold, your mother. And speaking to Mary about John, says, Behold, your son. John and Jesus were unbelievably close in relationship out of all the disciples. And I, the thing I love about John is that I relate with him so much. Acts 4.13, uh, I'll just read it and kind of just talk about it a little bit. This is one of my favorite verses when it comes to, to John. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they're uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now this verse is amazing because Peter and John are brought before the religious social elite of the time. These guys had all the degrees, had all the the blogs and the articles that everybody was reading. And Peter and John are these common, uneducated fishermen who are brought before this to be questioned about, how is it that you're preaching with such power? How is it that your ministry is so effective that you're drawing all these people to this man called Jesus? And in Acts, Luke says that it was because they had been with Jesus. They'd been with him. What was the qualifier? Communion. Communion with Christ. And just as it is true for John, it is true for us. That my life now is about communion with God. This is why it is so important that this life of God was made manifest in a person. Because life is inherently relational. God is a relational God, existing in three persons, in one nature of Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, in eternal and perfect communion. And he creates us that we might be in communion with him also. This is the purpose for life. And so as we see in our text, this life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. Eternal life is relational. The big idea that I kind of want to get across to you as it pertains to, I think, kind of where your church is at with this church life series, especially as it relates to God's grace, is that God's grace enables us to live a truly flourishing and joyful life despite whatever seasons or circumstances or emotions, sins that we encounter, that God's grace shown to us in the person of his son Jesus, enables us to live a truly flourishing, truly joyful life, despite whatever circumstances or sins or emotions or seasons of life that we are in. And so we're going to hit on life and on joy, and specifically eternal life. This word of life that we see in verse 1, This phrase is a loaded phrase that John uses. Because in the Greek philosophical world, this idea of the ultimate reason or purpose for life was called the word. 
the ultimate reason behind all things, ultimate purpose behind all things, was described as the Word. This is what John says here in verse 1, that this reason, that this purpose, this behind all things, sustaining all things, the end of which all things are aimed at, was made manifest in Jesus. It is inherently relational. Jesus, in John chapter 17, verse 3, as he's praying to the Father, he actually gives us a definition for eternal life. And he says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, this is a tricky verse in English, because the word know has so many different meanings to it, doesn't it? English is unbelievably uh, ambiguous <laughs> as a language. Not so much the Greek, which is wonderful, because we can understand that this know that Jesus is talking about is the relational knowing. It is the kind of knowing where I'm in relationship with my wife and I get to know my wife. Not things about her, like her favorite color is green, which it is, but really knowing her, knowing her. And in fact, it's actually translated that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Genesis, where it says that Adam knew his wife, and they gave birth to their son. It is this, the deepest level of intimate communion knowledge. This is the kind of eternal life that Jesus is describing. Now, this holds sway not just in the promise of once I pass from this life, I'll enjoy this kind of relationship, but you notice the present tense on that. It is the here and the now, that this kind of life of relating and communing with God is for now. And this phrase eternal life that John uses is so loaded it's got so many different nuanced understandings of it. One of the meanings is the kind of flourishing, abundant, and vibrant life that is connected to the divine. This is the kind of eternal life that John is talking about here. All of us are searching for meaning and purpose. All of us underneath the surface are really looking for a vibrantly filled, purposeful life. It motivates us. It drives us. It pushes us. It pulls us. And we don't often think about it. It just happens. We're looking for it. We're searching for it. We want it. We crave it. Eternal life is relational, and it is meant for flourishing. It is meant for the best kind of life lived out. And that the best kind of life that is lived out it's something that is deep in my bowels. It's, being, it's forming me, and it's being formed around me. One of the authors I've been jiving on lately, uh, James K.A. Smith, he's a philosophy and theology professor at Calvin College. Um, he writes this about our, our loves and our desires and the motivations and how we are being um, really influenced by these imagined best kind of flourishing life. He says our ultimate love moves and motivates us because we are lured by this picture of human flourishing. Rather than being pushed by beliefs, we are pulled by a telos, or an end, that we desire. 
It is not so much that we're intellectually convinced and then muster the willpower to pursue what we ought. Rather, at a precognitive level, we are attracted to a vision of the good life that has been painted for us in stories and myths, images and icons. It is not primarily our minds that are captivated, but rather our imaginations that are captured. And when our imagination is hooked, we're hooked. And sometimes our imaginations can be hooked by very different visions than what we're feeding into our minds. Those visions of the good life that capture our heart have thereby captured ourselves and begin to draw us toward them, however implicitly or tacitly. The goods and aspects of human flourishing painted by these alluring pictures of the good life begin to seek into the fiber of our everyday non-cognitive being and thus govern and shape our decision, our actions and habits. Thus we become a certain kind of people. We begin to emulate, mimic, and mirror the particular vision that we desire. Attracted by it and moved toward it, we begin to live into this vision of the good life and start to look like citizens who inhabit the world that we picture as the good life. We become little microcosms of that envisioned world as we try to embody it in the here and now. So many of the penultimate decisions, actions, and paths we undertake are implicitly and ultimately aimed at trying to live out the vision of the good life that we love and thus want to pursue. That's a very long-winded way of saying the same thing I just said. (laughs) But I think in it, it kind of paints this picture that there's a lot that is happening underneath the surface of our soul that is, is automatic, it is going on, and we don't often perceive it, and yet it is so influential and how I view the world, and how I view that the best kind of life lived out. Now, as a Christian, as a Christian, we have this vision painted for us in Jesus. The life of God manifested in Jesus. He is to inform us. He is to shape us. He has given us his word. He has given us his law. His law really shows us how life works best. How life works best. And when we begin to operate outside of his law, outside of his word, this is where we begin to fall into all kinds of trouble. Shame and guilt and fear begin to pull at us and seek into our minds, into our hearts. God's law shows us it's our guide to a flourishing and nurturing relationship with God. John, in the second chapter of his letter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, he says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. And again, the relational knowing. Relationship with Jesus begins to now inform my vision of the good life because I have the very life of God in a person that I am relating with. And he shows me how life works best. This is the kind of eternal life that I can have now. Now, the problem is, just as we had from our our long-winded quote, the problem is that we have all kinds of things that are informing us that are not Jesus. We have things that the world is telling us of what kind of life we ought to be living, what kind of things we ought to be pursuing, what kind of values we ought to be cultivating. And this isn't a problem that's just kind of unique to the 2017 year. I mean, Adam and Eve, our very first parents, experienced the same exact thing in the garden. The picture of perfect human flourishing with God, what shall happen? But the devil comes in the form of a serpent and begins to paint a very different kind of picture for Adam and Eve of what life could be. 
that they could live a kind of life without God, that they themselves would be God. And it plunges all of the rest of us into ruin. And we all here are facing the same battle of the world, telling us what life ought to be. And this result of not listening to God and not listening to Jesus and not allowing his vision for my life to be that which I am actually pursuing and loving and and leading separates me from God. Death is a separation, isn't it? It is a separation. And all of us are separated from God because of this. Paul the Apostle in Ephesians chapter 2, he says this. He says, and you, including us, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Notice this, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by children nature of wrath like the rest of mankind. The body and the mind, the, the holistic view of the human person has been captured by the vision of the world. And Jesus comes as the perfect life of God, manifested it. We can see and hear and touch to restore us to where we ought to be, to where our souls are longing for. He comes to us and restores this vision, begins to paint a very good and very beautiful and soul-satisfying picture of what life is to be. And it will look very different than the life that I am living in the world now. This morning, where are you at with Jesus? Are you listening to what the world says gives you life, joy, comfort, security? Perhaps the world seems beautiful to you. Perhaps a life apart from God seems so much better. Let me give you just a few reasons why I think Jesus is so much better than the world. Maybe I can stir us toward affections toward him again this morning. First, he gives us infinite second chances. Infinite second chances. That's so good. Second, he accepts me as I am this very moment. I don't need to do anything but come to him. And he accepts me as I am. He makes me clean on the inside. No matter how dirty my soul feels because of the sins done unto me or the sins I've committed or the woundings that I've endured, the shame or the fear or the guilt that I have in life, Jesus makes me clean. He washes me. He cleans me. He places me in a family, an eternal family, one that is marked by love, and joy, and security. I loved hearing about this family who's adopting the little girl from China. She did not have a family, and now she will have a family. What a beautiful picture of us. We who were separated from the very life of God have been brought into the very life and the family of God. Jesus comforts me more intimately than anyone can. He knows the deepest parts of my soul. He knows those things which cause me great fear. He knows those things which cause me to feel shame and guilt. And he enters into those places and comforts. 
He walks with me steadfastly through all of life, through all the seasons, all the circumstances, all the valleys, all the darkness that I will encounter in life. He is with me, though my family and my friends and even my own self abandon me, that Jesus is with me now. He has walked with me. He will continue to walk with me and take me safely home. He gives me the greatest purpose and meaning that we can ever have in life, which is to be part of the eternal, glorious kingdom of God. There is no other purpose. There is no other meaning that you can find anywhere that is more glorious than that. Nothing. He heals us of all our infirmities, of all the miseries, of all of the things that my soul has endured from life. He heals. He heals. He makes us brand new over and over and over and over again. God delights in you. Did you know that God actually likes you? He doesn't just love you. He actually likes you. That's a very different way to relate with my father, to know that he likes me. He's actually really happy with me. And lastly, he turns my sorrow into joy. The great Redeemer redeems any sorrow and suffering I experience and is able to turn it into joy. He turns my sackcloth into ashes, or my ashes into garments of praise. And this is, brings me to my second main point that John really focuses at, which is of joy. And we'll finish by taking a look at joy. In 1 John chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, John continues. He says, that, meaning this life, this eternal life in Jesus, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Our joy may be complete. This word our is not the uh, John and his little team kind of our, but like the all ours joy may be complete. John is talking about this joy that is communal. Joy is relational. In 2 John, the second letter, verse 12, he says, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. There's something special and unique about face to face physical presence. And especially in the community of God's family, one of joy. Joy is relational. True joy comes from Jesus first. Sometimes we can have this picture in, your, uh, in our minds of a very stern God, right, who obey, don't disobey. You disobeyed, bam, you know. Kind of have this idea, but God is a really happy God, as John Piper has been preaching about for the last 35 years. But it really, John 15, 11, we see Jesus describing this joy. He said, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Again, this idea, this imagery of a cup that is brimming over and spilling out with the joy and the pleasure and the delight of God. Jesus gives it to us. Joy is to be shared. This word fellowship that we have in verse 3 of our text is the word for sharing, for communing, participation. It is something that is shared. 
with one another. Joy is shared. It is relational. It is shared. Me and my little family, uh, my wife and my two kids, we have a, a tradition. Uh, every Valentine's Day, we go to an ice cream shop, and we have ice cream together. And my daughter is going to be four in about a month. So this year was the first time she could have her own ice cream. Not the biggest one, but, you know, like a little scoop of ice cream. And she was way too excited about this. And then my wife and I, of course, you know, we shared an ice cream sundae we've, we've done every year forever. And we're at the ice cream shop, we're eating, it was really special. And so I said, you know, I want to share this ice cream with my daughter. So I, I give her a scoop of my ice cream, and she just, <gasps> her just face like lit up, and she was loving it. And then she said, here, Papa, have some of my ice cream. She wanted to share in return, which is really sweet. And then, as I was like going to eat it, I kind of like glanced down, and she's just focused on me, almost kind of creepily, you know, like, how is he going to respond to me sharing my ice cream with him? And just the joy and kind of the time, the sweet fellowship that we had as a family just made it that much richer. And this is the kind of joy that we have together as a church family. As we share our lives, as we walk through things together, joy is greater, meaning more powerful, more potent than suffering. What is the difference between happiness and joy is a question I've been thinking about a lot. Happiness, of course, being the outward expression. Uh, it comes and goes, it's up and it's down. But joy is a much deeper-seated sense of satisfaction and delight that is able to weather the ups and the downs of circumstances and emotions. We don't need to look any further than our Savior Jesus to see how much stronger, how much more glorious joy is than the suffering we can endure in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. It was for joy, and it was with joy, that Jesus endured the most shaming, difficult, trying, painful, suffering and death that any human has ever experienced and ever will experience. Joy was through it all. The joy of seeing his brothers and his sisters, us, be a part of the family. Because the amazing thing about the salvation that we have, you know, we can throw out all the big words, right? The justification and the salvation and the imputation of our righteousness and all of those things, the whole purpose of it was for relationships. The whole purpose of it was so that we would relate with Jesus. The joy of having this relationship with us and us with him, which we can have here and now. And we will enjoy for eternity, of course. That's the promise. But that's not what John is getting at at this particular moment. Jesus doesn't just make us right and then walk away saying, aren't I awesome? Bye. No, he does it so that we might be adopted, relating in the family Joy is greater than our circumstances and greater than our suffering. And suffering will come, as we all know. Philippians 1.29, the Apostle Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also, what? Suffer for his name's sake. Isn't that amazing? It's a promise that we get to claim, that we would suffer with Jesus. 
Because the Christian suffers with Jesus, with him. The Christian does not have him. The Christian is suffering alone. We are not. We have our brother with us, walking with us, holding us, keeping us safe to the end. What a glorious truth. What a wonderful promise that we have. And oftentimes, it's in those times of suffering that we can look back and say, gosh, those are the times that I experienced the closest communion with God because it causes me to draw close to God. I say thank you for that. And finally, joy is eternal. Just as life is eternal, life in God is eternal, so joy is also eternal. Suffering is only something that we experience here and now. We will not experience suffering after this. Jesus has promised that all hardship and pain and death and crying and sadness will be no more, but that only perpetual, everlasting joy would be ours. And just as John related uh, this desire to be with the churches, so we, as Christians, long to be with Jesus. Right now, we have pen and ink, and we're able to relate with him by his spirit, through his word, his people. We can relate with him and talk with him and commune with him. But there will a day, there will be a day, and it's coming very soon when I will see him face to face. And my joy will be made full. Our joy will be made complete. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you do not leave us alone, that we are not lost and wandering anymore, but that, God, in you, I can have closeness and intimate communion and relationship. Jesus, I thank you for the comfort that you give to us by your very presence. Jesus, I thank you that you died on the cross, that you put death to death on the cross, that I might actually have true life. And Jesus, just as you had promised in John 10.10 10, that we might have life and have it to the full, it is only in your resurrected life, Jesus, that we have true life. May we here this morning experience that fullness of life and that fullness of joy in your very presence by your Spirit dwelling in us, Jesus. And I pray that this life and this joy would enable us to weather all of the seasons and the circumstances of life as we continue to fix our eyes and our gaze of our soul upon you, Jesus, knowing that we will be brought home safe and sound without blemish or scar. Jesus, thank you for your promises. We pray all these things in your name, Lord Jesus.